Hey TYT, I'm Nomi Konst, here in Boston, Cambridge to be specific, at the Harvard Kennedy School Shorenstein Center to interview the one, the only, incomparable Donna Brazil. Of course, you know Donna Brazil was the former chairwoman twice of the Democratic National Committee. Uh, she was the interim chairwoman just last year after uh, the famous incident where Debbie Wasserman Schultz had to step down. Uh, she's the author of the book Hacks. This is the new book out that I've read. I read it in like two days, wow. ate it up. She's a fellow here at the Harvard Kennedy School Shorenstein Center uh, for Media, Politics, and Public Policy. She's a former contributor to CNN, uh, currently a contributor to ABC News, and she's an adjunct professor at Georgetown. Is everything? Georgetown University. Yeah. That sounds good. All of it's good. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. I'm Thank really you. happy we're doing this. I am too. Thank you, TYT. I'll, by the way, can I yes, just say a little praise? Um, I'm one of your followers. I watch you uh, because I want to know what's going on. And I also want to know why millennials are so... Um, emphatic about having a new brand of politics. So I want to thank you for all of your creative work, uh, for your willingness to step up and serve um, uh, inside the Democratic Party, for being uh, a part of the reform movement uh, now leading the Democratic Party. Um, and I am just grateful for this opportunity to not just share my story, but to also uh, perhaps challenge you to do even more. Ooh. Yeah, thank there's you. a lot more to do. Thank you. Yeah. So if you haven't read or uh, read the book or read about the book, it's getting a lot of attention. <laughs> Before we dive into the details, because there's so much juiciness in this, everyone keeps asking me, is it good? Is it good? It's better than you can even imagine. Why did you decide to write this book now? I, I left the DNC um, in the spring of 2017, and I was worried that um, no one would explain what happened. Mm -hmm. And what I'm what I'm referring to is it's not the results. We know that Donald Trump uh, won the electoral college and Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, but I wanted to take the reader inside some of the what I call some of the big decisions we had to make inside the party, uh, and also remind the the American people that we were hacked in in 2016. I went to Robbie Mook and many others inside the Clinton campaign, and I said, "Look, you guys." ran your campaign, you, you uh, control the DNC's uh, financial operation, uh, operation, so why don't you write the book? Mm -hmm. And when they decided to, to uh, uh, not write the book, I decided it was time to write my story. Hmm. Let's talk about this story. All right. You have a long history with the Democratic Party. Yes. You were the campaign manager for Al Gore in 2000. And you wrote a book right after that race. That's correct. Cooking with Grease, Stirring the Pots in American Politics. <laughs> and that was a, a, a political memoir, part history book, but also the salacious stories around the Gore campaign, losing Tennessee, and of course those long 37 days in which we tried to get all of the votes counted in Florida. Because of course... For, for, for many of our younger viewers, uh, <laughs> Al Gore won the, elect, the, the popular vote, but not the Electoral College, and That's came right. down to Florida, Palm Beach County. So there's, a, there's a, a story I tell here on campus, and that is every time the winner of the Electoral College loses the popular vote, Donna Brazil gets to come to Harvard. This is my <laughs> second trip to Harvard. Uh, I hope it's my last trip, because clearly the Electoral College goes back to the Civil War era, the beginning, and we need to find a way where voters can directly choose the president and not go through this old 
uh, uh, paradigm where we uh, choose electors to select our president. I think it's time for us to, to make a, some major changes in our electoral system. We need Democrats to do so. We need Democrats to get elected. I think a lot of Democrats feel the same way. Correct. The Democrats are at their weakest point since 1929. Yes. They've lost now around 1,100 seats, uh -huh. not counting municipalities. They're Correct. broke. Not not because of you. Let me just make I that clear. They're I, broke. Yeah. Uh, and, and folks are thinking, well, do we just win in, in re Republican years when the Republicans mess up? How are the Democrats going to be able to revive themselves? I, you know, I'm, I'm fairly optimistic. Mm -hmm. I think the results on Tuesday, November 7th, I know people look at these results and say, well, well was it an anti-Trump vote or was mm -hmm. it a pro-Democratic uh, vote? I, I believe it's, it's, it was not any of the above. This, for the first time, I've seen people decide on their own to run for office, mm -hmm. to occupy seats that Republicans have occupied, mm -hmm. to run in places where only Republicans have won. And what, what I saw on Tuesday, November 7, was a new party emerging, a party that is more open, uh, open in terms of ideas, open in terms of uh, diversity of candidates and views, and open in, in terms of the kind of support that they were able to garner on the ground. Mm -hmm. This was not a top-down approach that we have seen within the Democratic Party over the last uh, 20 years. This was a bottom-up approach. Mm -hmm. If the party continues to go in that direction, then I think the party can recapture some of those seats in 2018 and be in a better position in 2020. We have left too many states uh, unoccupied. We have not put resources in the South. We have not put resources into the Mountain West states. Uh, it's time that we uh, abandon what I call the 18 states and District of Columbia strategy to get 270 electoral votes and go back to Howard Dean's model, uh, 2004 model, uh, of let's win in every 50, all 50 states. So that's the future of the Democratic Party. If we can invest in, in, in races all across the board, not just presidential races. Right. I want to win the, president, uh, the presidency as well. But we have to invest at the, at the grassroots level. I was down in Louisiana just a few weeks ago. Um, I'm no longer party chair, but I've been, I, I went to Canvas in Northern Virginia. I went home to Louisiana uh, for our mayoral election. And Latoya Cantrell, uh, uh, she's not native born, but she ran a grassroots candidate with hardly any money, no support, but the support of the people in the neighborhoods. And she went neighborhood by neighborhood, knocking on doors and, you know, talking to people. And she won. She beat the establishment. Uh, and I've seen the same thing happen in Virginia. I saw it happen down in Georgia. And, you know, I was just in Alabama recently. And I hope that, I hope that Doug Jones is able to capture that grassroots support not relying on, on uh, Washington, D.C.-based consultants. And there's nothing wrong with Washington, D.C. It's a great place to live. I've lived there for a long time. But the Washington consultant class only knows how to throw money at media but not put resources into building a talent base within the Democratic Party. We have to build a new talent base. We have to be open to new ideas. we got to stop waiting for a poll to determine whether or not we're going to advance issues like raising the wage, like climate change, uh, like the Dakota Pipeline, which, mm -hmm. by the way, I was chair of the party. 
and I was trying to get the party to come out with a strong statement. I had to go to Brooklyn, the Hillary Clinton campaign. Then I had to call over to the White House just to get a damn statement. I mean, how dumb is that, that the chair of the party cannot even make that determination, what's best for the country, what's best for the party? So I see a bright future for the Democratic Party, but it's going to take a new, uh, a, a new crop of candidates, and it's going to take more people inside the party who are willing to, let's just say this, willing to, to fight mm -hmm. for some, some major changes. So you talk about the consultants and, and, and the presidential years. The Democratic National Committee has become the presidential campaign committee, essentially. Well, that's one of, four its, years. one of the most important functions of the party. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not just to support candidates every year but to run the nominating process for right. the presidency of the United States. That should not be our only priority. Right. We should run campaigns and candidates every election cycle, not just every four years. And every four years when we do have a presidential race, it's, it's a billion-dollar industry. Correct. So if you look at the party now, you know, it, it's not, there's no 50-state strategy. Uh, hopefully there will be soon. It's right. become a very centralized party. And... The consultants who seem to occupy this space, our audience is very familiar with this, because <laughs> I report on it all the time, uh, and so does Jink. The consultants seem mm -hmm. to follow that money. Are they fighting against the 50-state strategy because there's not as much money in recruiting hundreds, sometimes thousands of candidates instead of just focusing on the presidential race? Well, it starts with the, the chair of the party in the offices mm -hmm. going to donors and saying to donors, Look, we want you to invest in the DNC. We, we would like you to make a, a contribution to help us build the, the, the future of the party. Mm -hmm. uh, Republicans, over, the, over a 10-year period during the Bush years, uh, the Koch brothers and many, many others invested well over $150 million, not into making the RNC a beautiful little, you know, mansion in Washington, D.C., but they invested in what I call grassroots politics. Mm -hmm. They identified the candidates. They trained the candidates. They then educated them on the issues, and then they helped run their campaigns. When the campaign season was over with, they took the best of every campaign. What worked? Was it data, mm -hmm. analytics? Was it grassroots support? Was it media, messaging? They took the best of everything that they learned, and then they used it in the next cycle. And so over a 10-year period, uh, in addition to redistricting and gerrymandering, their consultants were not hired to work in Washington, D.C. They were hired to work on the ground. And then they had ALEC, uh, the American Legislative Exchange. I think that's the right name, but I'll call it ALEC. Mm -hmm. And ALEC was funded by corporations. They used that to write a uh, a quote-unquote, a, a blue book mm -hmm. on all of the issues from abortion to voting rights to you name the, you know, climate change and say, here's your policy, uh, here's what you must advocate at this level in the legislature. So again, they kept building and building and building until they were able to take over not just state legislative houses, state houses, gubernatorial seats, but also all the way up to Congress. Mm -hmm. It was a bottom-up strategy. And the Democratic Party needs to take at least one page from that book. And I'm not saying, you know, take a page from Alec or take a page from the Koch brothers, but take a page in terms of go down to the city council level, the municipal level, 
uh, and begin to harness a new crop of candidates. Begin to put those ideas into action, not just at the national level, put them into action at the local level. We should invest in public education at the local level. We should be investing in, in uh, higher education at the state level. Put those ideas into action. If we do that, 10 years from now, we're going to have a different country, a different set of priorities, and clearly a different set of leaders in Washington, D.C. and across the country. It seems like this battle between, I'd say, a centralized strategy and a, a more mm -hmm. local strategy has been going on in the Democratic Party for the past 30 years. Correct. You were on the Jackson campaign. That was <laughs> one of your battles. Yeah, we, we were quite anti-establishment. <laughs> yes. So what have you learned since, since the Jackson years, the Gore years? Well, I, I've I've occupied various seats at the table. I, I've I've had a folding chair, and I've sat in the high chair. Uh, <laughs> and I have to tell you, uh, the folding chair was always my best chair because I can move around and do a lot mm. more than when you get in the high chair. When you're in the high chair, you're a target. But when you're in a high chair, you almost uh, you're in a position where you have to protect the status quo. But when when the status quo is not working, mm. um, you have to complain. And I found it very difficult when I was in the high chair uh, to essentially sign off on things that I thought did not work well for the mm -hmm. party. For example, I raised objections to uh, giving out big contracts. I learned that we had a contract in 2014 that paid someone close to a million dollars to come up with a quote-unquote narrative. Now, what narrative? Precisely. What's the Democratic Party's and, message? And when, and when I went back to this consultant and said, look, can you give me the results of your project, but don't charge me hmm. another fifteen, twenty thousand because we're broke. Yeah. That consultant bought. He said, no, I got to get paid. But you've been paid. You've been paid over eight hundred thousand wow. dollars. Uh, and I had no idea the DNC was giving out that kind of money. Now, here I was. I mean, I was an officer, but I had no idea because I never saw the actual written contracts. And by the way, many of these contracts, there were no-bid contracts. What does that mean, no-bid no contracts? No-bid, meaning that they were handed to someone that they knew. Right. So the, the, the chair and the uh, uh, executive director was called the CEO. Mm -hmm. And that person then uh, went out and let these contracts. But they were not competitive because had they been competitive I could have I could have competed mm -hmm. someone else could have competed mm -hmm. but I also believe that in reforming the Democratic Party every officer should sign some disclosure as well as members of the executive committee perhaps the entire DNC and they need to let people know if they have any conflicts are you being paid is are your is your firm being paid uh, are you involved uh, with any of the, what I call the sister committees, the DCCC, DSCC, are you receiving resources? Because I think we need to know where the resources are going. But going back to this narrative project that we paid close to a million dollars, when I sought that information to use it so I can give it to state parties, right. I had to pay for it. You, the DNC had to pay for the information they already paid, paid for? for? Right. Because... What happens is that when you keep consultants on the payroll year after year, cycle after cycle, and they are working for various, uh, various what I call sister parties or super PACs, right. you don't have access to the information. I also found it interesting. This was the most interesting thing, and I, I have a little bit of it in the book. But do you know that I was not on any strategy call 
So you Yet as we DNC paying. chair I were not paying. on any strategy call with the Clinton campaign? Or, or the DNC? None. Zero. Not How was that? Because the DNC was essentially an ATM. Um, I was not on any strategy calls. Uh, I was not privileged to any polling information. Now, did I complain? Of course not. This was their campaign and the agreement that I talked about in the book, not the joint fundraising agreement, the addendum. So let's 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 break that down a little bit. You you enter the DNC, uh, you're put into an office, you know, in your little spot. They have somebody following you around, making sure to monitor right. everything you're doing. Very the, nice woman, by the way. <laughs> they're not giving you access to information. Correct. Uh, this is all written in your book. You had some disagreements with people who were there to push back on everything you you did. Right. And then and then there's this joint fund fundraising agreement that, if we go back to the primary, there were a lot of complaints from the Sanders campaign that, uh, you know, they were being criticized for not sending money to the states. Well, it turns out that Secretary Clinton also wasn't sending money to the states as she promised; he was Correct. funneling back. So, what is the joint fundraising agreement and, and the addendum? Like, let, let's clear the record on this now. Well, first of all, uh, the joint fundraising agreement is an essential part of how the DNC. Uh, operated in the post-McCain-Feingold world. When the so-called soft money, the uh, unlimited amount of money that you were able to, to uh, garner from corporations, mm -hmm. et cetera, when that money ended, uh, then the DNC became the entity by which you could funnel additional money over and above what an individual could contribute to a, to a presidential candidate. So uh, over and above the $2,700. Uh, a donor could give an additional 100000 to the DNC uh, or 300000 if you mm -hmm. gave to the building fund, the legal fund, as well as the convention. Wow. Uh, plus, uh, so the agreement is set up between the DNC, the presidential campaign committee, and the state parties. Mm -hmm. And both Hillary as well as Bernie, and I'm using their first names for obvious reasons so that we, we can talk, uh, they they signed this agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, Hillary immediately began to raise uh, that large amount of money into the HVF, uh, the Hillary Victory Fund. Mm -hmm. uh, and Bernie uh, campaign, I think, raised less than $10,000 into it. Hillary campaign um, uh, had set up a separate agreement uh, that gave them not just the ability to raise money into this account, but an addendum, a memorandum of understanding between Robbie Mook, who was the campaign manager, and Amy Dacey, who was the CEO of the Democratic National Committee. Uh, they had an agreement in exchange for helping the DNC uh, deal with its, its cash flow problem. Mm -hmm. The Hillary campaign would essentially have control over three divisions, or three departments of the DNC. Uh, technology, uh, research, and communications. My objection when I learned about this agreement is that it prevented me from doing my job. And later what I learned about the agreement is that um, this gave the Clinton campaign control over those divisions or departments before she had secured the nomination mm. in July. So this uh, was in March? This, uh, this the was agreement signed? was signed in August. Oh, in August. August of 2015. 
Interesting. And here I became chair in July of 2016, but I learned that the campaign was already utilizing that, not to pay for mm -hmm. rent or, say, open up an office in Columbus, Ohio, or Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They or did Michigan. That. Or Detroit. <laughs> uh, they did that. But in addition to doing that, they also began to hire more researchers. Mm -hmm. They began to hire uh, more technology people. Uh, and again, look, the, I, I found nothing illegal, but I, I believe it was inappropriate and unethical to start that process long before securing the nomination. Well before. I mean... And... and to my dismay, it prevented me from doing my job mm -hmm. as chair. Because, look, I'm the chair of the party, and I have a press release. This is a day that Donald Trump just says something crazy, like he says it every day. And I'm like, okay, I want to put out this press release. And then I learned, I said, well, you know, here I am, a former press secretary, communications director, ABC, CNN, NPR, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, well, why is the press release not out? Right. I thought, well, well, we sent it to legal. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Anything wrong? No. We sent it to political. Anything wrong? No. Well, what's the problem? We're waiting for Brooklyn. Brooklyn? Brooklyn. I objected. I'm the chair of the Democratic National Committee. I'm a former officer of the DNC. I, this is my second time being chair of the DNC. I know my job. Why is someone in Brooklyn telling me what to put on a press release? Did they not trust you? No, it was not an issue of trust. It was control. They mm -hmm. took over the Democratic National Committee. And it's my belief, and, and I hope that the DNC will make this a permanent fix that until you secure the nomination, no candidate uh, running for the presidency uh, should take over or control the funding of the DNC. The integrity of the DNC should, should always be neutral. And look, I say this as someone who, as Al Gore's campaign manager, I stepped aside. I stepped aside uh, as co-chair of the Rules and Bylaws Committee. So let's, let's, let's bring this forward, because I want people to understand the position I was in also as an officer of the DNC uh, when uh, we had to expand the number of debates. Because mm -hmm. this is something that I think your, your viewers want to know a little bit more about. I'm an officer. Right. Uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz did not come to me as the second, I mean, I'm vice chair, right? She's chair, I'm vice chair. And she never came to me and said, Donna, how many debates should we have? I would have said as many as possible. Mm -hmm. By the way, it, it, it helps the party um, to get our message out. And at a time when Donald Trump was taking so all of the airtime out the room, I wanted to have the DNC out there. I wanted our ideas. Uh, I wanted our people. We had five candidates. We didn't have 15 or 16 like the Republicans, but we had five candidates. And so I did fight for more debates. Mm -hmm. I never had a chance to weigh in until the controversy, uh, the controversy really started to take over the entire conversation. Meaning the debate, the debate deb questions. How, no, no, there was no. another controversy. Oh, the debate, the, the timing, the, the Martin O'Malley. The number of debates no. plus the timing. Right. Okay. Our debates uh, were going to be held on weekends when they were football games or other kind of, you know, Thanksgiving. I Holiday. Was oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, uh, well, you know, December 19th, maybe. We shouldn't do that again. But anyway, uh, I got involved in this conversation mm -hmm. in mid-January because we were feeling a lot of questions about um, the number of debates and... Our supporters, meaning Democratic voters, wanted more debates. So I got involved. I got involved because um, I, I, I got, you know, 
candidates calling me. Mm -hmm. I, I have I have people in the media calling me. Um, I'm also getting calls from uh, people in the community mm -hmm. saying that how come uh, the DNC is not partnering with more minority television stations like Univision, mm -hmm. uh, BET, TV One. So I got involved for uh, many reasons. And, and the other reason why I got involved was because I felt that there was another conversation taking place all over the country, and yet our debate schedule did not include a conversation about uh, what black lives matter, mm -hmm. uh, uh, kept raising criminal justice reform, the death penalty. And of course, I wanted to include the Flint water crisis. I went to Flint, Michigan. Uh, uh, and so I got involved to work with the candidates, to expand the number of debates, and to ensure that some of these difficult issues would be addressed, as well as to partner with different media outlets. Now, uh, when WikiLeaks, which, as you all know by now, WikiLeaks, which uh, not only received the bulk of our DNC mm -hmm. emails uh, and other data, when they decided to begin to parcel out the emails, WikiLeaks had an agenda. WikiLeaks decided to show only those emails that pertain to Clinton, none right. that pertain to Sanders, none that pertain to Martin O'Malley, none that pertain to Jim Webb or Lincoln Chafee. Mm -hmm. When WikiLeaks put out that information in the middle of uh, the, the campaign, mm -hmm. I was afraid that I would be caught with uh, giving Hillary Clinton information that I didn't share with Sanders. Mm -hmm. And so what I did was I ran back home to Washington, D.C., because that's, that's where I keep all of my, my junk, I should say, my stuff. Um, and I couldn't find it. I went, through, I, I went through my Brazil associates. I went through all of my other various emails, mm -hmm. including my Georgetown email. And then I said, okay, let me find my DNC. Well, my, my DNC email were corrupted. They were destroyed in mm -hmm. June. So I had no evidence. Why were they destroyed in June? Because... Unbeknownst to all of us at the time, uh, Debbie, Debbie, uh, the DNC learned, I should say the DNC, the leadership of the DNC learned on April 29th that we were being hacked, that the uh, Cozy Bear, APT-28, APT, you know, these advanced uh, 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 intelligence operations that were inside our systems. They were the Russian intelligence. That's right. And they and we they were not internal. They 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 were not these this came about as a fishing expedition. Mm -hmm. P H I S H I N G. I learned a lot about hacking. And they were embedded in our server, they were embedded in several staff people computers and and so uh, the first uh, remediation efforts that the DNC undertook in uh, May and June was to swipe it, to clean it. Right. And so everything, after 30 days, it was lost. In fact, most of the DNC staffers uh, attending a convention had everything lost. They had to start from scratch. So any correspondence, any tracking, any... Emails, everything. Everything. In fact, all of my uh, personal... Um, and, and look, my Rolodex was quite extensive. Mm -hmm. I had 40,000 names on my Rolodex. Wow. And it was on my DNC because I've been a DNC member for almost 30 years. Yeah. And I had a DNC account um, because, I, because I've been active in the party. And my DNC account really was about me helping, you know, I had all of my donor information, mm -hmm. all of my statewide contacts. I've been mobilizing for the party for almost 40 years. Right. Everything wiped out. 
and you weren't told. Well, I did get heads up, but how could I save it? It right. was corrupted. Right. I couldn't transfer. Uh, so I'll give you a good example. I keep a lot of pictures of my dog. Uh, I kept a lot of pictures of my family. And after Katrina, I, that that was invaluable. Hurricane mm -hmm. Katrina destroyed everything that we owned down in Louisiana because my, my, my parents' home was flooded. All of that information, all of my siblings, their wedding pictures, everything. Mm. I, I cannot show you... Uh, my my mother's picture because I had everything on that server wiped out. So when I went to look uh, for my emails, um, I can get emotional because I just thought about it again. It really hurts uh, because I really you know I try to put it behind me, but it, it's I, I don't have any pictures yeah. um, because it's gone. It's gone. It's wiped. It's it, it's history. But I went to look for those emails. Because I thought, okay, now people just need to know, yeah, I gave everybody heads up. Mm -hmm. Because that was my job. I was under a lot of pressure. My job was, it wasn't like you wrote the question and then I say, oh, I got the question. But no, it was like, I had it. This you was also, my information. You also weren't the chair then. I think sometimes people confuse because wow. of the timeline. They think, you know, this the emails came out from WikiLeaks while you were the chair, but it was from earlier in the year when you weren't the chair. You were WikiLeaks even found emails that I sent to John Podesta. Uh, they were not my email. They were John Podesta's email. But yet him. I had to find my emails to uh, confirm whether or not John's emails were true or false. John never talked about his emails being true or false. There was one email from May of 2009 mm -hmm. that they doctored to say May of 2016 that I was criticizing the Obama economy. I'm like, well, that's from 2009. That's 2009, I did send John an email saying, no one is feeling the stimulus, John. The, yeah. the stimulus is not working if people back home don't, don't feel relief from the financial crisis. Well, WikiLeaks put it out as if I was criticizing Obama in 2016. Hmm. And so, but I, at this point, I could not disprove a negative because I didn't have my emails. Yeah. My emails were wiped. They were gone. They were history. My pictures, gone. History. My data, gone. History. In fact, my new phone was like a blank slate. I would look at my DNC phone, and I'm like, hmm, how come? Oh, by the way, being an officer of the DNC for almost eight years, there are only two things I received. And one was a phone in which I gave the DNC back $100. I still give the DNC $100 every month for my phone. And the other one was that email account. Interesting. Because I wanted an account that would reflect these these accounts of these this data is from the DNC. Right. And I kept it separate from my own data, and therefore I couldn't find it. And so I apologized. I had to apologize. I had to apologize to Bernie, in which I did at the convention. I apologized again, again, again. I continue to apologize because I could not find my data. But what I did know at the time was that whatever I gave to Hillary, <laughs> I gave to Bernie, Martin, and anybody else. And they've since said so, too. I mean, that's one thing that we have to say and make very clear because there's there's a lot of back and forth. Ted, Ted Levine, Levine, Simone Sanders. <laughs> exactly. I mean, if you, if you went through even my current emails, mm -hmm. uh, not the ones that were destroyed, but the ones that I've had since, you know, uh, July of 2016, 
I talk to all of them. Right. Why? Because they're my colleagues. They're my friends. I mean, I've known Bernie Sanders as long as I've known Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. I've known Ted Devine as long as I, I've known Charlie Baker. Uh, you know, Charlie Baker is, uh, is from the Clinton an advisor campaign. from the Clinton campaign. Because yeah. we all go back. We all right. go back to either the Mondale campaign, the Dukakis campaign, the Gephardt campaign, mm -hmm. the Jackson right. campaign. We go back. And, of course, the Clinton-Gore campaign. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the emails were... It was a huge part of last year, and then you became the chair amidst all of this noise, amidst the Russian hacking. Your security was at risk. I mean, we've we've all been there. We've all gotten death threats, and we've all—I yes. mean, not all of us—but in this space, yes. we've in the public eye, it happens. But it happen. it's hard to know in the middle of all that: is it coming from Trump? Is it coming from Russia? Is it coming from the Bernie people who are legitimately upset that? Yes. You know, this the situation with the primary was not done in the most transparent way, and they wanted an outlet. Um, they did. So, I mean, what was it like trying to restore the Democratic Party, work with the Clinton campaign that's not the friendliest <laughs> at the time, while getting all these attacks from places you don't know where they're coming from? Well, I assumed during this period of time that I was not the only person under attack. My first response would always be, what's happening with Hillary, mm -hmm. because you could tell there was a certain amount of misogyny going on, right. a, a certain amount of, and I'm sure you feel the same way when people come after you, they don't come after your ideas, which are the, the things that people should be looking at. They should be looking at, what are you saying? Mm -hmm. What are you trying to change? What are you trying to accomplish? No, they attack you. Right. They'll attack your length of your hair. Yep. They'll attack the color of my hair, which I think with this blue hair might look I a little like better. <laughs> but, they, but they go after personal things yeah. and not the ideas. And so my assumption was that other people were being attacked. But secondly, I had a responsibility because I had taken on this responsibility again to serve as chair. My responsibility was to the institution. Mm -hmm. I felt compelled to protect the integrity of the Democratic National Committee, which meant that I wanted to strengthen our own physical security. I put in measures to ensure that our office was protected, that our infrastructure was protected, that we could fight the attempts at hacking. It's not like somebody, the FBI, or the CIA, or the NSA, or any all of the other three-letter alphabets come to your help. They, they alert you to the danger but it's not like they're going to protect you. Yeah, you went to the FBI with, with Ray Buckley. Um, Henry Munoz and many Munoz. others. Yep. Tom McMahon, who mm -hmm. I talked about in the yes. book. Uh, I had to fight to get Tom hired. Somebody who was going to get unpaid. I Tom McMahon to, worked on the how, how under Howard Dean. 50 State Strategy. Right. And, you know, I wanted somebody who was confident. Yeah. I wanted somebody like myself who had been out in the trenches. Somebody mm -hmm. who could fight. And so this was a major battle. And, and yet I got no help. It, it really hurt me. Um, it hurt me not just as an individual, but also as an American, mm. that I'm, I need help. The Democratic National Committee was under attack. It wasn't just a, a attacking the chair. It was an attack on the institution itself. And that's another reason why I think in, in the coming years, the party needs to retool itself, uh, need to prepare for these future attacks, because... Uh, last year, it might have been the Russian meddling through social media, through other forms of disinformation and espionage. What if somebody goes after the grid, mm -hmm. the infrastructure, goes after turning off our 
you know, go through our banking system, yep. go through our electrical grid. We need to understand what's at stake in the cyberspace so that we can strengthen our institutions for the future. And you learned a lot about this being under attack. You went to the FBI, you had security experts you talk about this in your book extensively. Yeah. Installed security cameras in your house, uh, turned, you know, put your cell phones in different rooms and yes. moved your computers out of your budget. All those things that were told. Yes. Um, I mean, it, it made me feel cautious about my existence, moving cameras out of my room, you know, turning my TV yeah. off. Yes. This is... And, 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 and not using thumb drives that you get at a, a convention yeah. and sticking them into your computer, right. having a two-step verification process. Do not use password, lowercase p, uh, as your password. Uh, they, these are... <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> these are prudent steps. And, and yes, yeah. if you have a bank account, uh, and just because you have a bank account doesn't mean you have money. Online banking yeah. is also. So you need to have some protection of that. These are things I learned, mm -hmm. and I had no idea. I mean, nowadays when I go to the ATM and, and try to get 200 bucks, I, I thank God I get the first 200. But if I go to the same ATM two hours later, and it's not a, uh, it's not a concern about how much money, but because of being hacked by both the Chinese and the Russians, I have to call the bank and say, yes, I'm in Cambridge. And I need another two hundred dollars. Right. But well, well, that's not normally you get two hundred every week. Well, how do you know my pattern? Because now all my patterns have been checked. Exactly. Hacking is so uncomfortable. It is so disruptive. And I think your viewers should know that they have to take the extra step of protecting all of their cyber. Uh, integrity mm -hmm. and their cyber identity because it can be stolen. It can be hacked. Is it just that the Repu I mean the Republicans they tried to hack the Republican Party as well? Did they just have a better system? What what was the difference? Well, it's not like you can go to uh, Best Buy uh, and and get a uh, super hacking non hacking machine, or you can go to Staples and get uh, the spyware. Mm -hmm. uh, no, they may have had a better uh, system of de detection. But I think that ultimately what the fishing expedition that came to the De Democratic Party and DNC officials and others, I believe that it, it, they penetrated much more than just our institution. But many, many of those who were under attack and perhaps did get hacked perhaps chose not to go public with it. Interesting. Uh, and I, I think we'll learn a lot more once the congressional investigations are over with. I know when I went to the RNC and said, look, um, we're being hacked. Watch yourself. Don't open up X, Y, and Z because it might, it might contain spyware. Uh, here's a new phishing uh, mm -hmm. expedition. Here's a malware that we just learned. We share not just with federal officials, but we also share with the Republicans. And the reason why I made a decision to share it with the Republicans is I assume that if we both went down, meaning if all of our material, all of our data was corrupted, one of us had to remain standing. Mm. Because remember, we have no federal right to vote. It's all a state right mm -hmm. to vote. And we have no federal database. The both both major parties control databases of over 200 million Americans. And if we went down and they went down, then it would be a complete blackout as to whether or not you're, you are a registered voter, I am a registered voter. Right. Because remember, our state voter registration databases were also being hacked. So this, in my judgment, I saw this as a big, large problem that nobody was concerned about. And as chair... I had to take on all of this responsibility, and that's why I wanted to have a good, competent team working with me 
But I had a lot of conflict with Brooklyn. I mean, Brooklyn was a very, they were tough to work with. And not everybody, because I had a lot of friends up there. Charlie Baker, I, I, you know, I say I go to Charlie Baker, I go to Mignon Moore. I go to them saying, pleading with them to help me. But Robbie, Robbie had his own agenda, and um, I still don't know because he hasn't written his book. I still so, don't know so why he is, made some of the decisions that he made. This is what's so interesting about the title of your book, Hacks. There's, mm -hmm. the, there's the hacking of the, the, the Russian hacks, and right. then there's the political hacks. Let's right. talk a little bit more about the political hacks, the juicy stuff, because <laughs> my goodness, do you dish it. Have they, 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 a lot of Clinton staffers from the campaign wrote a letter immediately yeah. after you, uh, the, the book was published and you came out. And you you published an excerpt in Politico right before the book was published, yes. and they basically denied that any of what you said was true. Yes, and then the next day they started to backtrack a little bit from that and began to acknowledge that there was a separate agreement. Then they said, "Well, oh, Bernie hit a chance." No, 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 no. Um, my book was published on November seventh. They also accused me of trying to undermine the elections. In Virginia, elections that I had not only uh, worked hard. Mm -hmm. uh, Justin Fairfax uh, was one of my staffers in the Gore campaign. I had not only raised money at a time when he was not getting money from many of our Democratic donors, but I had also agreed to canvass in Northern Virginia. Uh, here on campus, I was working with a group of students who were doing phone banking every night. We were identifying an absentee ballots, and yet they also accused me of doing that. It rained that day, and they also tried to accuse me of causing the rain. The weather. <laughs> but you know what? Um, I uh, That Sunday on on, CN, uh, on ABC, I said they should go to hell. Mm -hmm. I, I backtracked from that because I said, no, Michelle Obama reminded us, when they go low, you go mm -hmm. high. They were upset that I wrote a book that did not glorify uh, the operations that I thought had many flaws. The one flaw that I, uh, I pointed out in the book, and I realized that uh, they may have taken it personal, but it wasn't personal. This was a critique that comes from somebody with 40-plus years of experience. When you fly into a city like Las Vegas, Clark County, Nevada, and you notice that the highest vote-getter, the person who wins elections every two years is not... Nobody's calling him. Yeah. And I... And who I, was that in Vegas? His name is Lawrence. And uh, I went to him, uh, and I said, I said, I, and Senator Ford, I said, look, um, has the Clinton campaign reached out to you? No. Uh, well, I need to reach out to you. What do you need? I said, do you have literature? Yes. Uh, what if I pay for half your literature? And you have your name uh, for re-election, but on the back I have, you know, uh, either Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, Joe Biden, whatever, because I'm the chair of the mm -hmm. DNC, I'm not the chair of the campaign. I said, but I need you to carry our literature. Right. And they agreed to do that. And I, would, I started going across the country, and people kept telling me, well, Madam Chair, we don't have any yard signs. They were willing to put up yard signs, but they didn't have any, they didn't have Clinton yard signs. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, why don't you have any yard signs? Well, we don't know. And so my job as chair was to provide resources, mm -hmm. was to give them your sign. So I started with battleground states right? because I was convinced that we could win. But I eventually had to go to non-battleground states, and guess what? I found the same thing in non-battleground mm -hmm. states as I found in battleground, that there were a lack of materials, a lack of enthusiasm, and I began to raise the alarm. And you know what Brooklyn did? I called Brooklyn. The high command in Brooklyn would say, don't worry, we're going to win. So this is so interesting you say this because uh, I 
before I was at TYT, <coughs> I was on the Bernie campaign. Mm -hmm. And we complained over and over that after the primary, and this was documented in a Daily Beast article one year ago, that they weren't listening to us. We wanted to help out. They needed the Bernie people. They were Absolutely. complaining. We're going to lose if Bernie people don't show up. Bernie people were willing to go out there and campaign with right. the Clintons. We called them after three, four, five attempts. No word back. Nothing. We got this. We're good. Yeah. I mean, I think what's, <coughs> what's so shocking after reading books like uh, Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnas's Shattered, which documented not going to Michigan and just the focus on data, and Robbie Mook does not look great in that book. He ignored Bill Clinton's advice. Bill yes. Clinton, who has won an election. The way that they treated someone who understood politics in the ground as if he was some crazy person. Right. I guess the question is, is this band of consultants <coughs> and, and staffers that have been rotating around from different positions, um, have they been failing up? And did they, I mean, really, we're looking at 1,100 seats lost, and a lot of these people rose up over the past 10 years. Right. But all I see is a, you know, a long list of failures. But folks that have been supporting each other and supporting each other keep getting hired, and then it's almost like a group think where, well, of course data is more important than talking to people <coughs> and handing out signs. Mm -hmm. Well, sorry for my, my uh, uh, finally winter's coming. <laughs> so here's how it works. Um, every cycle uh, produces its own uh, what I call dynamics. Mm -hmm. And what I typically do uh, a year out, and I've been looking at 2018, you take a look at the, the political uh, landscape. Then you look at how we're going to set up ourselves to win. And the, you, you, it, takes a, it takes a candidate first. Uh, and then uh, surrounded by that candidate is strategists, uh, campaign staffers. And often uh, candidates uh, bring with them a group of people that have worked on previous elections with them. And they also look for people who've won in previous cycles. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not surprised that you would go out and find people who worked, say, for Barack Obama in 2008. The difference of 2008 and 2016 is that in that eight-year period, the country changed. Mm -hmm. There were voters who felt uh, that Obama, while a great president, loved a lot of the things he accomplished. But they still believed that there was more to do. With Hillary Clinton uh, uh, returning to the battlefield in 2016, this was not 2008. Mm -hmm. 2008 was a different set of um, a different set of characteristics that would have been ideal for somebody like Hillary Clinton, who was an insider, who had connections and understood how Wall Street worked, because Wall Street was Milton, mm -hmm. and then how Washington worked. Uh, and Hillary would have been an ideal candidate in 2008. In 2016, Hillary had to make one, and I think one important distinction between 2008, and that is the country was now both uh, anti-Washington and anti-Wall Street. Oh, yeah. And so there was an anti-establishment mood uh, that was very much alive in 2016. They made her as the candidate of experience, uh, and the candidate who could get things done, which, which in reality is the truth. Mm -hmm. However, when you're running against a reality TV star, uh, that reality doesn't perform well in, in this kind of political environment. 
the people she had around her were very competent people. I don't challenge their competency. I challenged their strategy. Mm -hmm. Their strategy was one of boxing her in this, this uh, experience box, but not giving her an opportunity to be outside that box and say, but here's what's wrong with this and this and this and why I'm going to change it. You can't run in a, a, a year when people were against the establishment as an establishment candidate. And I think ultimately they boxed her in, and that's why there was a lot of momentum, a lot of energy on the left from Bernie, who, while a member of the Senate, was not part of the leadership, and he could run against Washington and Wall Street and the way things have always been done. It was a perfect storm for Bernie. It was a different year for Hillary, but ultimately the reality TV sh uh, show star who understood every button and every click uh, was the one who took up all of the airspace, and he was the one that many Americans saw as somebody who didn't walk in and just basically wipe the table mm -hmm. clean because he never had a seat at the table. Um, that's how I view 2016. 2020 is going to be a far different year, yeah. I think, for uh, for the DNC. We're going to have to, I think the party is going to have to look both inside and outside Washington. You cannot find the answers to what's the American people, you can't find it inside Washington, D.C. They want something fresh, new, different. Right. And they want somebody who will be their champion, who will not uh, be afraid to take on whatever the, the power structure, whatever the establishment is. And I think and, and, and a, in a season where Donald Trump remains uh, the flavor of the week, month, and minute, uh, we're going to have to have a message that resonates beyond the Trump period, but go directly to the heart of what is, I think, making most Americans anxious every night, and that is they still feel like this crisis is still somewhere near. And with this Republican tax bill and everything else the Republicans have been doing uh, on the legislative front and the regulation front, it's, it's going to take everybody, uh, all of us at the table, in order to, to rebuild the Democratic Party. So... I there was a poll that came out yesterday, an NBC poll, that said 71% of millennials, those under the age of 36, want a third party. Mm. I saw that poll, and I, as we're approaching uh, the reforms that are going to be submitted for the, the Democratic Party, I thought, are the Democrats inside the Democratic Party reading this poll? Do they understand the crisis that is not approaching but exists you have millennials who overwhelmingly identify progressive. They, you know, Democrats were handed a generation, the largest generation, the most diverse generation in history, most educated generation in history on a silver platter. Yes. And they don't want to join the Democratic Party. What's it going to take? Well, that poll, when I saw it, um, one, I, I, I see it as an opportunity, not as a, not as a defeat. It's an opportunity uh, to uh, go back out there and to say, fine, you want a third party, um, uh, that's well and good. You can spend the next 20 years building it, or you can take one that is turning 170, and you can make it, uh, you can make it uh, what you need it to be in the future. I think we should give millennials an opportunity to serve, mm -hmm. to begin to f get their feet on the ground inside the party. Um, we may not get, you know, 30 or 40 percent on the initial uh, round, but I think we will gather a larger percentage of the millennial vote 
if we give them an opportunity to speak in their voice, to serve in, in a way that will highlight their talents and skills, but give them an opportunity to serve. I've, I've long believed that this is their moment, and they have to seize it. Just like my generation, I am pleased to be a product of both the civil rights movement as well as the women's movement and a little bit of the peace movement. Mm-hmm. I, I've been able to serve in those capacities. Give the millennials an opportunity to serve. Some of them will run for office. Many of them will not run for office, but they will have an opportunity to reshape the future of the country. And I'm not going to go after those who want to go uh, in the third-party route. Go go for it. But I'm telling those who wish to find their seats at the Democratic Party table to come on in. The room is wide open, by the way. I mean, yes and no. I mean, there's the people like you who... Have all you came from the Jackson world? This right. was essentially what Jesse Jackson stood for. That's correct. Was welcoming more voices, diversifying the party, bringing in you know new leadership. The Rainbow Coalition. The Rainbow Coalition, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but there's there's still this element. There's the Clinton element. We cannot deny it. Uh, you know, many people who are refusing to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like there's people being appointed into leadership positions that are coming from. Millennial side, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say the Sanders side because most millennials mm-hmm. did support Bernie Sanders. They did. That's correct. So if the Democratic Party wants to move forward, mm-hmm. wouldn't it just logically say, "All right, Bernie, all right, we'll let you in. We'll let you bring in some reforms. We know you're an independent, but we also know that you, you know, that you have a lot of Democratic support. You have union members. Right. You right. have right. millennials. Right. Look, um, Jackson '84 was far different from Jackson '88. Jackson '84 was the movement. Mm. Jackson 88 was the moment. Uh, Before the moment, you have to have the movement. And a movement that might have been ignited and and given new fuel and energy uh, uh, with Bernie in 2016, it has to continue because this is the moment. The moment is coming quicker than you anticipated. And I think for people who walked away last year saying, oh, I'm done with it, Really? Yeah. This is when you, once you get in the door, or once you start tasting the soup, you keep eating, you keep walking, you keep coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, the movement gave us this moment for reform. And, and if you walk out the door, when you're starting the reform process, simply because you can't get your ideas in the room, uh, it, took us, it took us a season to just get Take went off the winner take all off the the table. We used to Jackson campaign. We did not like winner take all. What 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 is that? Winner take all is that Walter Mondale, Jesse Jackson, and five other people compete. Walter Mondale get thirty seven percent. Jesse get thirty four percent. But Jesse get no delegates. Mm-hmm. Winner take all left us without having even one person in the room who could speak on our behalf. And so we got rid of that. We also lowered the threshold, and we, we the threshold of 20%, and you can get one delegate. We lowered the threshold so that it was 15%. Hmm. And 15%, you, can, you know, we felt that we can get better representation. So Jackson 84 was the movement. Hmm. Uh, Jackson 88 was the moment. Jesse almost won the 88 primary. Yeah. And so I think what people have to understand is that not, you cannot walk into a room and say, and this is your first election, and you put it all on the table, and then when you lose, you say, I'm going home. No, when you lose, you figure out what happened. Hillary won three out of the, out of the first four contests. Mm-hmm. And she didn't win uh, three out of four uh, simply because 
you know, there was something bad about the process. It wasn't rigged. She won because she had been planning for that moment, uh, you know, eight years ago. Every single county chair, <clears throat> Iowa. Eight years I mean, ago. Everywhere you went, yeah. But that was the moment because the movement had already been initiated back in 2008 when another anti-establishment candidate, anti, he wasn't part of the DNC, uh, he also fought to eliminate superdelegates. He fell short in that goal, but he won the he won the pro process. Barack Obama. So I I encourage people to stay in the room, mm -hmm. keep uh, putting forward ideas, reform ideas. We had a great platform, mm -hmm. uh, and that platform should be dusted off and put before the Congress tomorrow. We should not go and fight uh, up on Capitol Hill. To, to water down the Republican bills, we should be putting forward our own bills. Why, why go with something that's watered down when we should be fighting for our own infrastructure program? Let's go back and put our ideas on the table. We have enough lawmakers. Let's try to inject our ideas as amendments to major bills, but let's put forward our own ideas and build a movement around those ideas. I mean, this is just logical. Well, Obviously, why doesn't everybody agree? What's because we're Democrats. <laughs> we like Those of have, us who are left. <laughs> yeah, well, don't don't leave the table. You once you get in the room, yeah. stay in the room, find a back door, find a sliding door, find an open window, find mm -hmm. a way to get more people elected. Find out when the primary is next mm -hmm. year. Find out when the next election is. Find out who's interested in running as a delegate in 2020. Get in the door, stay in the room, and then fight for your ideas. That's what I've done for 30 years. And let me just tell you, it doesn't, I'm not a popular person sometimes because I have been fighting for things that people did not want. And yet you just walk, you keep fighting and fighting and fighting, and you keep advocating for those issues. And when I look at the Democratic National Committee now, it's far different than the Democratic National Committee of 1984. It's different in terms of the people who are in the room. Uh, the kind of ideas that now comes out of the DNC, but we have to change the structure that allows only a few people at the top. Right. And we also have to change a paradigm that says the top knows better than the bottom, when they are more at the bottom than at the top. And we also have to have competitive open bid contracts, uh, and the contracts should be open to people with the best ideas. Uh, you know, I go back to this narrative project. We're, we're going to pay a million dollars for somebody to help us come up with a theme, a message, a slogan, and here come a big election, and all of that is thrown to the side. And then to get it back on the table, you got to pay another million dollars, another 10000 20000 Washington has controlled our politics for a long time. And I'm a native of Louisiana, and um, as chair of the party, uh, and I had the same problem when I was campaign manager, which makes me sad. Uh, but I cannot send resources home. Mm -hmm. I cannot send signs, staff. And yet there's an election in Louisiana, and where is the database? Where are the list of volunteers? Where are the donors? Uh, and, and that's a problem when, when I go down to Alabama and there's no excitement. Why? Because we haven't had resources in 30 years. 30 years we've been avoiding putting resources in Alabama. And if you put resources, someone criticized me recently. They said, because the chair put money in Chicago. I said, yes, I did. I'm mm -hmm. guilty. And why? Because Tammy Duckworth yep. needed resources. 
Uh, she wanted to have some robocalls with Barack Obama and Michelle Obama. The DNC was obligated to pay for that because mm -hmm. they were the national, they right. were, President the Obama president. was the president. And it was my job to get it recorded and disseminated. And why am I criticized for trying to help Tammy Duckworth? Because I wanted to win not just the Oval Office, but I wanted to win the Senate, the House, and state offices all across mm -hmm. the country. And I sent money everywhere. So you talk about staying at the table. Are you going to stay at the table? After this, can you stay at the table? Will they let you sit at the table You know, I, I've, been, I've, been, I've been an outsider. I've been an insider. I feel more comfortable on the outside than in the inside because I don't ever want to be in a situation where I cannot be an advocate for change. Um, I'm, I am grateful for a party that has allowed me to serve for as long as I've served. But I also see my job in the future as encouraging and hopefully uh, finding seats for people like you. Um, I want to see more women. I want to see more minorities in the room. I'm not asking anybody to leave the room. I'm saying scoot over, make room for others. Uh, we have to be a party of the future, uh, not a party of the past. I don't want to rest on the fact that uh, I ran Al's Gore campaign. I've, I've served as party chair twice. That when I came out of college, I was an intern, that I helped to make Dr. King's birthday a national holiday, all the other stuff mm -hmm. I've done, and all the things I didn't do. I want to be known as the person that went out there and recruited the next generation. Mm -hmm. I want it said that by 2032, whether I'm, I, I'm still there or whatever, by 2032, there's a whole new generation of Americans who are serving in all of these capacities. And just like on Tuesday night, November 7th, I cried. I cried because Justin won. Uh, when I hired Justin, he was supposed to be the briefer for, for Tipper Gore, and now he's the lieutenant governor of the state of Virginia, the second African-American mm -hmm. to be elected uh, statewide in that capacity, Doug Wilder being the first in 1989. And so for me, I, I want to wake up one day and not have to look at race agenda, uh, because Dr. King's dream, his vision was always to make us equal. Uh, not special, but equal. And I want to stick around long enough to see that day come so that when I'm able one day to be able to say in person, I know this, some people don't believe in all of this, I do, but I want to be able to say to Dr. King that we did it. Mm. We achieved your dream. I want to say to Fannie Lou Hamer that I sat in your seat and I'm grateful that I got a chance. This little black girl from Louisiana, I sat in your seat. And I want to be able to tell Barbara Jordan and Shirley Chisholm and all of the others that we left this country better. And we also made the Democratic Party stronger. Mm. That's why I remain a Democrat. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you Can't so wait much. for you to run for president. Oh. What are you going to run for? <laughs> Come on. Crazy. Hell, yes. Yeah. She's crazy. I mean, at 33, come on, two years, oh, you'll yeah, be qualified. Oh, yeah, two years, just like that. Yeah, go, come Let's on. Let's the campaign. Yeah, come on. I got 10 I got a lot bucks. of work. Uh. I got a lot of work to do. We got to rebuild the party first before anybody like me can run for anything. But. I want to sign your book. And I was going to ask and, and you. And when I sign it, I'm going to say to a future leader, I won't put what office, but I'm going to say <laughs> to a future. And thank you. It's your turn. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank this you. This was... 
Hacks. I definitely recommend reading it. It's the book of the year, in my opinion. I've read a lot of books this year. Interviewed a lot of authors. Thank it's you. Fantastic. And Excellent. it took a lot of courage. I think, you know, one thing that I just, I said this over a tweet, thank you for courageously saying these things. It's hard to, to speak up against the establishment, especially when a lot of them are your friends and people right. you've known for years. Uh, it really took a lot of courage, so and, and let, me, let me say something. This is the most important thing we're going to say today. I think we said a lot today. But you and I have always, we've disagreed. Mm -hmm. We've had really good strategic fights. But what I've always seen in you is your willingness, not only you don't back down from a fight, which is what I like in a woman. Girl, because <laughs> I've been in so many fights where women say, oh, I'm not going to fight. You won't back down, but you are persistent and going out there. And I admire that. And when I told you that I wanted to talk to you, it's because I don't like people who back down. I like people who are feisty, who are gutsy, who's courageous, and you got some balls. I got some vagina. Well, I got some breasts and vagina too. Good thing it's a We're not gonna do a uh, we're not gonna do a monologue. No. Oh, uh, because as I tell people, my stuff might be too dirty to have a monologue. But we're all gonna do this. We're gonna keep talking. Yep. And I appreciate Absolutely. that. Thank you. Thank you. Both.